Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com I'm Mick Garrison it's time once again for postmortem AMA the fun size show where you ask me your questions and producer Joe is always on top of it Joe how are you we got some good questions today we've got great questions we have we have the best fans Mick we do they are very um querulous as well are you ready to dive in oh you bet let's dive let's do it all right well friend of the show uh and and fellow podcaster nick taylor wants to know where do you mick garris get your horror news from uh interesting often from podcasts um uh, often just from online. Uh, Dread Central is a good place. Fangoria is a good place. Uh, Bloody Disgusting is a good place. And just a lot of friends who are in the industry who keep me apprised of what's going on. It, it, it's really kind of a wonderful brotherly, sisterly community, this, this genre community, where we're all banded together uh, by living in a mutual gutter in in the eyes of the mainstream uh and so it's it's a really wonderful group of supportive friends and colleagues i agree i mean if someone if if people in the community get excited about a movie we tend to hear about it just because people talk about the things that they're loving you know absolutely Um, i feel like i found many a great small little horror movies that way um as i'm sure you have too you bet Uh, Steven wants to know, has there been a place you filmed that you fell in love with and returned later with family? Well, um, yes, a couple of places. Um, the city of Tucson, where we based Desperation, is a great place. I had no idea how great it was until I scouted it and we shot there. And I stayed in a very historic hotel called the Arizona Inn that uh, Cynthia and I fell in love with. And we've returned there many times. It was kind of a getaway in the 30s and 40s for a lot of Hollywood types back in the day. Walt Disney, Cary Grant, they used to stay there. And they would stock their movies um, on DVD for people who stayed at the hotel to watch. Uh, The other place that we've returned to on multiple occasions is Salem, Massachusetts. When I first... When I first scouted that for Hocus Pocus, I only knew a little bit about it, that it was the witchcraft capital of the world and all of that. 
but it is a very special place. And fortunately, when I scouted, it was near Halloween time. When they do 11 days of celebrations leading up to the climax, which is the candlelight vigil to Gallows Hill, where the witches, supposed witches were actually killed. And the town of Salem is absolutely gorgeous and wonderful and magical. Mm -hmm. And especially around Halloween time, we went back like five or six years in a row after that. Yeah. And so there's a couple of great places that, that I've gone to that, uh, and there are other places too, but th these are the two that we've returned to repeatedly. Oh yeah, no, I love Salem. I've been there several times. I mean, I grew growing up in New England. We went there several times, and and it's so much fun around Halloween. Um, yeah. it, it really, I mean, and and Hocus Pocus really captures that. Uh, you know, and ironically though, I also lived in Arizona for six or seven years, and yeah. I never went to Tucson. Uh, really, never. Uh, yeah. So I guess I guess I will have to uh, have to check it out. You will. Um, it's it's a pretty great place. Tommy asks, what is your favorite horror score? Well, it's not going to be a surprise to anybody, but probably the most ground, groundbreaking and innovative score was Bernard Herrmann's score to Psycho. I love that. I love scores that kind of change the direction of horror uh, soundtracks. Carpenter did it beautifully with Halloween. But I like classic full-scale orchestral scores as well. But, you know, uh, Goblin and the films of Dario Argento were great. What was interesting with Goblin was um, when we did Masters of Horror, the first season, um, Claudio Simonetti, who was the heart of Goblin, composed the scores for both of them. The first season had a full orchestra recorded in Rome. And it was classic and beautiful and still recognizably Goblin-esque. And then the next season, he did one electronically that was more in line with the traditional Goblin we're used to. But there was nothing like the score to Psycho when it was done. And Bernard Herrmann always talked about it being a black and white musical score. It's all strings. There's no brass. There's no percussion. There's nothing but strings. And that was a very bold Stravinsky-esque move. And it really, really enhanced the fear in that, in that movie enormously. Yeah. One, one that uh, has been so influential and copied so many times that, that my composer and I even tried to do all strings in the all pair nightmare. So uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. That probably uh, Richard bands, uh, Turning it inside out for reanimator is probably yeah. the closest version to getting it without being arrested. That's true. That's true. Uh, TD Perro would love to know, speaking of composers, um, about your process working with composers. How, how do you do it, Nick? Well, first of all, it's working with somebody you really uh, trust and admire and respect. Um, my first feature film uh, was Critters 2, which was very Spielberg-esque in its approach. And the idea of doing a full score with that, uh, I just felt, even though it was a very low-budget movie and electronic scores were all that was being done in independent horror movies, we needed to have a full acoustic score, orchestral score. And I met 
Nicholas Pike, who'd only done one feature before and it did not get released theatrically, went straight to video. But Nicholas is a South African British composer who is just brilliant and we hit it off right away. I love music, I know music, I'm not really deeply knowledgeable about classical music and could never compose a score myself. Mm. But um, but having someone who's simpatico like that, and Nicholas has done most of my scores over the years when I'm able to choose a composer if I'm not working on a series where I'm assigned a composer or when he's busy and I, I have to look for somebody new. Richard Band was somebody who I met on uh, Masters of Horror when he did uh, Stuart Gordon's scores. And he ended up doing uh, one of my scores on Masters of Horror, the Valerie on the Stairs. But you sit with a composer, you sit through the film, you spot the music cues. Um, but if you're working with somebody really terrific, you don't want to give them too many guidelines because it confines them. You want them to give as much of themselves as possible and not do too much with a temp score because it can't help but influence them a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. And if you're working with really creative composers, um, you want that creativity to be sparked. So yeah, I uh, we always have a spotting session that goes for hours. Uh, and I will certainly have my input into what my intent is, um, when and where we want it to change course. But I want to give a, a great composer as much head as possible in, in uh, forging his own way and, and influencing the score with his own creativity within whatever more general guidelines I can provide to him. Yeah, I mean musicians i think are like they they literally create magic uh yeah. and and i am not one to try to tell a magician how to do magic <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you you look at a, a movie without the score the shining is a great example we had a 60 piece orchestra on that wow wow and it was it so enhances the tension and the fear and uh, you know it it's not just yelling boo at you at the point you want to jump. It's building and embroidering a, a groundwork from which you can build into explosive moments or pensive moments or romantic moments, but really setting up uh, foreboding, particularly in a suspense or a horror film. So important. And if you watched a horror movie without a musical soundtrack, you would be amazed at how not scary it is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I I totally, totally get it. Uh yeah. especially, you know, you know, when you when uh, imagine watching even not even a horror movie cut together without music. I mean, watching dailies for horror movies can be like <laughs> oh, it, it's painful. Yeah. I remember yeah. when we were doing the shining and and having somebody watching uh, a scene that I'd cut together which ended up being uh, what most people felt was the scariest scene in the movie in the bathtub scene. Yeah. And uh, without that, um, you know, it just lay there flat. It yeah. really was well-constructed. We put it together, put a lot of time and energy into building tension and fear there. But until that final layer was laid in by Nick Pike, you know, it, it was not nearly as compelling and, 
and frightening. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of have to use your imagination to see how it's going to work. And unfortunately, a lot of the, the, the money people, their imaginations don't necessarily always lend to being able to imagine <laughs> no. what it's going to be like when the score's there. Trust me, it'll be okay. That's uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Trust me is the last thing you want to tell. No. <laughs> <laughs> producer or financier. Yeah. Well, sticking on the subject of music for, for just a little longer, uh, Mike wants to know, what are your top rock albums of the 70s? Oh, my wonder years. Uh, okay. Well, that was a time when I was a music journalist, as well as singing in a band throughout most of the 70s. And our band was all original and more progressive rock. And my tastes ran a lot to progressive rock. One of the greatest progressive rock albums from the 70s. First of all, the greatest band in the genre was Gentle Giant. They did an album uh, called Octopus that is absolutely stunning and overwhelming. And you just listen to it in awe. You know, a lot of progressive rock bands um, are impressive without being enjoyable. Um, and you go, wow, that's amazing. But they have an emotional center and a, it still connects on a more basic and savage level as well as on an intellectual level. Octopus is great. And then on the other end, there's Bad Fingers Straight Up, which is just straight up rock and roll in a very Beatlesque way. And of course, I think Abbey Road was 1970. So we'll have to count that in there. The sure. Abbey Road. The first Emerson, Lake and Palmer album, I think, is really terrific. Um, you know, there were a, a bunch of really great split ends dates back to the 70s. Split ends became Crowded House. Um, and they are tunesmiths. The, the Finn brothers were tunesmiths par excellence and uh, just unique vocals, all that. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff from the 70s that I still listen to. And I, I try not to only have a, a diet of uh, music from my youth, but uh, I do tend to, to revisit it often. Well, we there just so many powerful memories are linked with with songs, so it's it's hard not yeah. to uh, not to go back to that well. No um, an interesting question from Mitchell Hall. He asks, "Do you think there is an '80s horror franchise that would benefit from being a television series?" I'm really not someone who thinks about horror franchises a whole lot you know That's true they did friday the 13th as a tv series but it was very different in that it was more like x files it, it was did, an did freddy too and freddy's nightmares which i directed one of um they uh they were anthology shows that happened to have linking characters it, you know, it was in an old antique shop or a curio shop for Friday the 13th. David Cronenberg did one of those uh, Friday wow. the 13th shows. Um, and Toby Hooper did the, the pilot for Freddy's Nightmares. So, you know, that's been done. Um, I'd rather see something new. Whenever anybody asks me about franchises or reboots and things like that, um, if it's well done, great. And there have been some really good ones. I mean, David Cronenberg's The Fly was a total reboot of a 1950s classic, but it was better. John Carpenter's The Thing, but it's not often the case that reboots improve upon 
what went before. But as far as 80s movie franchises going into uh, TV series, you know, it's been done a couple of times. They had some success, but uh, I would be hard pressed to think of uh, the next one. They did it with Critters as well. Um, yeah. So it's been I mean, the, the, the challenge, I think, with modern sensibilities in television, too, though, is, you know, you have to be able to stretch these stories out to eight to 10 hours of serialized television, right. you know, and and that can be hard to sustain with something that is like like Halloween, for example, which is kind of all anchored around a killer on one night. Right. Right. Um, right. How do you turn that into eight hours? You know, so, and I think that's why naturally they went into anthology storytelling with Jason and Freddie, because how do you, how do you do it otherwise? Right. Yeah. Um, so I think if, if you're going to find an 80s movie to mine, I think there has to also be enough dramatic tension. Enough story. Narrative. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That you would be able to, to spin it out. Even Friday the 13th, the series didn't have Jason in it. Right, right. So it's like, what? There's no summer camp. There's right. no Jason, but it's Friday the 13th. Yeah. And there were some there really was, good ones, you know, there, like Cronenberg's and Tommy McLaughlin did. Sure, sure. The show, yeah. But, but it I, really... I, I, I tinkered around with, with one of them, and I won't say which one, uh, for, for a studio a couple of years ago. And the great thing about it was it had a real family drama at the core of it. And that was kind of what we anchored the whole, you know, six, eight episodes around. And, uh, but Mike Flanagan kind of beat us to the punch with Haunting of Hill House and, uh, and yeah. went away. Uh, but, and, and I, and I, you know, adore Haunting of Hill House and I thought it was great, but he, yeah, he kind of did what yeah. we were going to do with this franchise. And that was that. But, uh, you know, onwards and upwards with the arts. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, here for the booze asks, when did you... <laughs> you're in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah. Here for the booze asks, when did you know horror was the way you were going to go with your career as a filmmaker? Well, I've often said that I never chose horror, that horror chose me. I was always attracted to it from the beginning. I never knew that I was going to have a career in film. It was a dream that seemed completely unapproachable and unattainable for, for a kid from the San Fernando Valley. But, um, you know, what I wrote ended up being horrific. It was what I was most moved by and most passionate about. But the first short film I ever made which got some attention from an agent. It got me an agent and almost became a, uh, a feature film. Uh, a producer optioned it and we actually had production offices to turn it into a feature film. It was called Breaking Up and it was an R rated romantic comedy. Huh. And so it was shot in the house that I rented and there were scenes in bed that with some dialogue that had taken place in that very bed before. Um, and that sort of thing. Um, it, uh, if it had been made as a feature, which was called almost irresistible, uh, it may well have changed or ended the course of my career as a filmmaker, depending on how it did. 
but uh, I've always been drawn to the horror genre. And although I enjoy working outside of it as well, um, it is the thing that keeps drawing me back because I think there are so many things about the horror genre that free up your creativity as a filmmaker and in what an audience wants to see. You're not restricted to the mundane. You're not restricted to the everyday. But if you set those fears in the everyday and the mundane, then I think you have a powerful combination of drama and horror and tension and suspense. So it, it allows you to do funny things, heartfelt things, romantic things, as well as those more mechanical exercises in building tension and fear and suspense. I completely agree. Uh, Johnny wants to know, what is the most dangerous stunt or special effect you've ever done? Probably the most dangerous one. There were several in the stand. There were a couple of them uh, in desperation. Uh, one of them that turned out to be almost fatal, but wasn't really a difficult stunt. It was, but the probably the most difficult stunt was the motorcycle stunt uh, in the stand where Harold Lauter, played by Corin Nemec, uh, goes over the bank of the highway and down this cliff and the the actual stunt person was on the motorcycle and went down i mean it had to have been at least 100 200 feet into a pile of boxes and a net like and it was just amazing and terrifying and i'm always holding my breath you got to trust your stunt coordinators you have to work with the best ones and trust them uh but the other one that was seemingly not dangerous at all was when we were in Tucson working on Desperation, uh, the old silent black and white movie scene that gives the history of the Kanta and the Kantak and, and Tak himself. That was shot. We built these cave sets uh, at the uh, community center in Tucson where they have all their big concerts and Keith Urban was scheduled to have his concert the day after we shot this. So the Chinese workers in this flashback sequence uh, undergo a, uh, a cave-in. So we're doing a cave-in and you can't use Fuller's Earth because it can be dangerous. So you use the safest things you can. We used walnut dust, which was basically just pulverized walnut shells to be the dust that falls down uh, during the phony rock collapse and the, and the walls of the caves are collapsing. So as they're running out, there were lights hidden behind the fake rocks on the floor and somebody kicked one as all of the walnut dust was coming down and the whole thing burst into flames and wow. we have like three dozen people in this phony cave. And there was a fireball that shot out of that cave about 10 or 15 feet from where I was. And so a couple of people did suffer some burns on there, but it was something nobody ever expected to be dangerous. And it was what the word accident was coined to mean, something that took place that nobody expected. And uh, it was something that, maybe could have been thought out better, but who expects to kick a light bulb on the floor that in turn ignites 
falling walnut dust that in turn ignites all of the the uh, plastic set that's going up you know fiberglass and everything yeah it was that was the most dangerous thing that's ever happened on a set that i've worked on yeah yeah no it's i mean look the 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 number one thing that i think probably people outside of who've never been on a movie set don't know is how slow things usually run and they usually run very slowly more than anything because safety first uh, absolutely there are extreme precautions taken to make sure that that you know even if it's a prop gun that they show that it's a prop gun that you know yep. I, I mean every everything everything about an assistant director's job is to make sure that the set is is running efficiently and safely uh, and there's a safety meeting at the beginning of every single day on a shoot yep yes there is yeah so yeah so you hope you hope these things don't happen but obviously accidents happen yeah and uh, special effects people all have to be licensed as armorers to be able to use yep. even fake guns um and there's a whole lot of steps between uh what goes on the screen and and the planning session yeah more more than i think anyone ever really knows but yep. uh, uh brent asks what do you feel is your best film so maybe not favorite <laughs> film but your best film that's that's a really difficult question because it's it's not my job to judge my work. All I can do is the best work that I can do. Um, maybe film filmmaking wise, maybe The Shining. Um, in a lot of ways, uh, we actually had the time and resources to make it in a complete way. Yeah, um, the CGI is not particularly good, but no, we it was 1997. The, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we can um, forgive you for that. Yeah, uh. <laughs> but but I've I've said often that the one that's closest to my heart that has the most of my personal feelings in it is riding the bullet. Right, um, and you know a very uh, low budget compared to most of the work that I've done, and. I love nightmare cinema a lot because I share it with some other really talented filmmakers um, working at the height of their powers. So it's, it's really up to the viewer to, to make up their minds. What is the best film? Um, but the, uh, when I try to be objective about it and there's nothing objective about best <laughs> opinions of what's the best um, I think, well, maybe the shining is the most polished of what I've done. Yeah. Well, I mean, you had, you had the, uh, a healthy budget and you weren't running around like you were with the stands. So <laughs> yeah, you, could, you, could, you could use, you could pull those resources more. Uh, yeah. So I, 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 I can totally empathize with that. Uh, okay. Ahmed wants to know what was it like to work with Bill Cobbs on the others? Bill Cobbs was a treasure. Um, he was up in his years, but so on the ball, so smart, so creative, so talented. You know, there are people you feel privileged to work with. And Bill Cobbs is one of those actors who brought such a dignity and depth to everything he did. And that voice of his was so deep and so resonant. And I was lucky enough to have directed the pilot of the other series. And Steven Spielberg asked me to be the supervising producer. So I got to work on the show throughout. 
and I directed two other episodes. So I got to direct Bill Cobbs three times. And that whole cast was fantastic. But Bill was somebody really special. And he'd been a musician and was just a, a really talented guy and, and just a pleasure. When you walk onto a set with somebody like Bill Cobbs or Charlie Durning, Charlie Durning would step onto a set singing and dancing and light on his feet and happy to be there. And, and it just charges your production. And Bill, Bill was one of those favorite people who is not all that well known by the mainstream, by the general public, but he was a national treasure. And I, I am so lucky to have been able to work with him. I love when you hear that actors are that, that delightful. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> it happens more often than you think. No, I know. I mean, there, there, there are so many that are wonderful. So, so many more. But the problem is, you never hear about it because you always hear the of the, the horror stories, divas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. True enough. All right. Final question. Tenacious Deb wants to know what is your favorite drama. Well, that's a very tenacious question, Deb. Um, it's hard to kind of rack my brains over that, but I, I do have a lot of classics that I love. Um, you know, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is a pretty powerful one. Jimmy Stewart so uh, was long my favorite actor as a kid. And it is such a powerful performance. And it's so patriotic in a way that we need right now. You know, the right has adapted uh, adopted patriotism as their own when they are the most anti-patriotic right now that's going on. But, you know, Frank Capra was a very conservative Republican uh, who made a film that was really about liberty in the kind of liberty that we can all agree with. But it's also a really good story of a one guy against the machine. You know, Frank Capra uh, was really good at telling the everyman stories. You know, you a lot of his films were thought of as very cornball and they called them Capricorn, ah. uh, you know, like it's a wonderful life, which is to this day still shown every Christmas on, on network television. I watch it every but, year too. But, you know, he really knew how to tell the story of the little man, even though he didn't write those movies. It's it's a very powerful movie, and James Stewart at his best. Um, and Capra himself, I was lucky enough to meet him. The one time I went to the Oscars was um, when I operated R2-D2 on the year that Star Wars uh, first came out, so on the 1978 Oscars. And the Oscars rehearsal dinner, I sat next to Frank Capra. Wow. And it was such a thrill for someone who's interested in film in any way. Capra was certainly one of the fathers of modern cinema and everyone was kind of ignoring him. And I was sitting next to him and I was very shy about talking to him, but he was quite eager to talk and, you know, just be able to express my love for the work that he had done was so exciting. And, and I think Mr. Smith may be the one that is his most powerful and to be able to meet the man, was was pretty spectacular. So there's a long roundabout answer to your question, Tenacious Deb. I love it. And I love Frank Capra, and I'm glad you do too. Uh, <laughs> you bet. All right, Mick, thank you uh, once again for a great postmortem AMA. 
And thank you, Producer Joe, and let everybody know how they can ask their questions. They can send their questions to Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram, uh, or they can send them to me at Joe Russo Tweets on Twitter or Joe Russo Graham on Instagram. And we'll be back with more soon. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.